Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. While the state has a record-breaking surplus, a number of local governments across Idaho still struggle to fund improvements and operations. It's a taxing problem, but a handful of small resort cities have a potential solution available to them. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Dr. Jacqueline Kettler of Boise State University and Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News give us a rundown of Tuesday's election results and whether we can draw any statewide conclusions from them. Then Logan Finney explores the impact of local option sales tax on Idaho resort towns and why other Idaho cities wish they had that option. But first, Idaho has joined a multi-state lawsuit against President Joe Biden's COVID vaccine mandate for federal contractors. Governor Brad Little announced Thursday that Idaho will also bring another lawsuit concerning vaccine requirements for private employers who have at least 100 employees. Meanwhile, Idaho's congressional delegation is trying to stop the mandates through legislation, with Senators Jim Risch and Mike Crapo joining Senate Republicans' efforts to stop the mandate on private employers through the Congressional Review Act, which is how Congress can overturn executive branch rules. Across the rotunda, Representatives Russ Fulcher and Mike Simpson co-sponsored a bill that would block funding for mandate implementation and enforcement. On this week's Idaho Reports podcast, producer Ruth Brown spoke to University of Idaho law professor Shakira Sanders about the constitutionality of vaccine mandates for federal contractors. It's a great conversation. You can find the Idaho Reports podcast on all major podcast players. And don't forget to subscribe. This week, the CDC gave its final approval for emergency use authorization of the Pfizer COVID vaccine for children ages 5 to 11 years old. On Tuesday, Idaho Department of Health and Welfare officials said those vaccines will be distributed to all seven health districts throughout the state and recommended adults reach out to their children's pediatricians to schedule appointments. Idaho pediatricians are also stressing that those vaccines are safe and effective for children. For the majority of children out there and the majority of my patients, this is a very safe and highly effective vaccine. I highly encourage talking to your pediatrician or your doctor about your child's case. But for the majority of healthy kids, this will be extremely safe to give, will provide them with boosted immunity against the COVID virus. And I recommend it to most families. And I certainly encourage you to speak to your pediatrician or physician about your child. COVID mitigation efforts in public schools played into many of the school board elections across the state on Tuesday. On Friday morning, I sat down with Dr. Jacqueline Kettler of Boise State University and Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News to discuss those results, as well as vaccine mandates at universities and what we can expect from the upcoming legislative session on November 15th. Kevin, what are the big stories from Tuesday's elections? Well, I think there are a lot of themes that kind of emerged on Tuesday. Uh, first of all, we're going to see a lot of turnover in school boards, and we knew we were going to get that anyway. When you looked at some of these big districts like Nampa and West Ada, 
these were open races to begin with. So we knew we were going to get new trustees there. We've had a lot of trustees decide not to seek re-election or just resign midterm because of the stress and strain of being a trustee in the middle of a pandemic. We also saw a lot of turnover. By my count, we had 47 incumbent trustees on the ballot on Tuesday. Only 26 of them were re-elected. 21 incumbents lost at the polls. So I think what I take from that between those kind of results and what we saw with some of the turnout numbers, and they were a little bit sporadic, but trying to compare turnout this week to two years ago, uh, definitely some spikes in turnout in some districts. So I think there was a lot more interest, engagement in these races, and as we saw, some partisan overtones, and we're still trying to sort out the money aspect of it, but in some races you saw quite a bit of money going into these trustee races. Very different feel to these races. Dr. Kettler, I want to get your thoughts on that because these aren't, on the surface anyway, partisan races. The, we're talking school boards, we're talking city councils, we're talking, you know, most years elections that go unnoticed by a lot of people. Right, They're, these nonpartisan races often have very little attention and turnout tends to be lower than what we see for national elections, right? I, I think it's interesting, Kevin, you mentioned a lot of incumbents losing, which is somewhat unusual. I think that the kind of frustration that we saw in 2020 is, continues to carry on about a variety of topics. And so I think there was that element. And so we saw some pushback, frustration, mobilization on those elements. Um, but it is really interesting to see some of the partisan organizations and partisan messages being very prevalent in some of these races and really kind of driving the issue agenda in some ways too. Historically, when we have a large number of voters and a large number of candidates who are focused on a small handful of issues that are pretty specific to a moment in time, does that energy translate to future elections or is this kind of a, a blip? I think that's an excellent question and it's something we'll be really watching um, as we move into the 2022 midterm elections, right? Because um, we have, of course, some really big primary elections coming up in the spring, but then also the midterm elections in the fall um, that will probably have impacts for congressional control, things like that. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see if some of these issues like education, COVID protocols continue to influence. But we also have in off-year and midterm elections often kind of a pushback or a response to the presidential election and so sometimes voters are trying to kind of temper a little bit and swing the opposite direction. Right, it, it doesn't seem like a huge surprise that there was pushback. This is something that we see often in off-year and midterm elections that whoever's in charge in the White House, voters tend to go the other way, right? Yes, definitely. And so we would expect this sort of trend a little bit, but it's interesting that it feels different. And the mobile and the turnout in some of these local races seems much higher than usual. As Kevin mentioned, kind of depends on the race, but. But I don't think you want to draw too many broad conclusions about what we saw Tuesday with these school board elections. Certainly conservatives swept the biggest races in West Ada and Nampa, and that may swing the balance of power especially in West Ada on issues uh, pertaining to pandemic protocols. But I wouldn't want to draw too many conclusions. These are hyper-local races. And, and we did see some, some hardline conservatives lose. Uh, David Riley, the uh, Post Falls school board candidate who was linked to some anti-Semitic tweets that he deleted off of his Twitter feed, but nothing is ever permanently, completely deleted off of Twitter. Uh, also had to explain away some ties to the far right, he lost. Two members of Janice McGeehan's education task force lost school board races in Eastern Idaho. And, and 
I don't think you can entirely connect that to the task force either. It, these are really hard races to read, and I really think it's kind of a mixed result. Conservatives definitely scored some wins, but it's not as clear-cut as conservative activists might want to make it sound. You know, and of course, only some members of each school board were on the ballot. Are these changes enough for us to see big shifts in things like mask mandates and other COVID mitigation policies? And not just mask mandates and mitigation. I mean, in Nampa, you have three brand new trustees. That's a majority on the school board. And we've seen this in the past. West State is an excellent example from a couple of years ago. If you have a major swing in philosophy and ideology on a school board, that can create some very immediate tensions between the board and the superintendent, the board and the administration. I'm not saying that's going to happen in Napa. I'm saying it has happened elsewhere. You know, Dr. Kettler, is it pretty normal to have this much turnover, not just in midterms, but also when, you know, as a society, we're facing these large crises, whether it's a pandemic or a war or an economic downturn? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's not surprising to see some turnover, but the incumbency advantage is pretty strong in some of these, I mean, up and down the board, but particularly some of these local elections where there is just isn't often a lot of attention or mobilization. And so I do think it's really interesting in how being in a pandemic, broader societal and cultural debates are playing into really, I think, driving some people out to be engaged in, in some of these local elections and against kind of the current um, office holders. I want to get your thoughts on what Kevin said about whether there are any patterns or larger lessons to draw here. Are there patterns or are these hyperlocal races that should be considered in a vacuum? Yeah, I think that it, it is always, we want to be careful, right, about drawing broad conclusions from a, a handful of races. Um, and I think things can shift quickly too. And so there's still a lot of time for many things to happen before next year's elections. But I do think we continue to see people very, um, energized and continued frustration from multiple sides of the aisle on what's going on and current policies and things. So I would expect that engagement to continue into next year. Anywhere in the state, did we see the same sort of energy from people who were in favor of a lot of these COVID mitigation policies? Or did that energy mostly come from people who were against mask mandates and distance learning? I think that's hard to say. I mean, I think uh, you know, definitely in West Ada, this was a factor. I think in Nampa, it was probably a factor as well, even though Nampa hasn't had a mask mandate in place in the schools. So, yeah, again, we've got races all over the state and a lot of small communities. It's really difficult and, and really kind of reckless to try to draw too many sweeping conclusions about what drove the outcomes in some of these races. I also wanted to ask you about school funding issues, sure. and this has been something that has made headlines over the last week after Senator Jim Rice from Caldwell uh, proposed eventually phasing out school bonds to pay for general funds. The, the supplemental levies. The, sorry, the supplemental levies, yeah. not the bonds. I, there were school funding issues on the ballot this week. How did they do? Well, the ones that I was watching most closely, we had three supplemental levies here in southern Idaho. Maybe the most important one, certainly the largest one, again, is West Data. It passed. It didn't pass by a wide margin. I think they got 52% support, and that's all you need is a simple majority to pass a supplemental levy. But I found it interesting that as voters came out in fairly large numbers to maybe send a message to administration about COVID protocols, they also, at the same time, voted to pass a supplemental levy. And West State has had trouble in the past passing a supplemental levy. So 
it seemed like the electorate out there kind of decoupled the concerns maybe that they've had about COVID protocols from the funding needs. Because West Ada has said, look, we need this $14 million a year to backfill and to cover some needs that aren't being covered by state funding. This is not a new levy. It's one that's been on the books for several years. And, and this is a school district, of course, that is growing rapidly uh, right. with the population growth in Idaho. Exactly. And, and this is a district not only that goes to voters, like many districts, with supplemental levies. This district goes back to voters you know, regularly with bond issues because they need new school buildings because they've got all these new kiddos moving into the district. I think it's interesting that this conversation uh, about phasing out those supplemental levies is happening as Reclaim Idaho is gathering signatures to put more school funding on the ballot that you know forcing the legislature's hand and and adding more funds into public schools and at a time that the state is sitting on a 1.4 billion dollar budget surplus that they could put into a lot of things including education you know we've talked a lot about k-12 through education i wanted to ask you about higher education and the different institutions interpretations of vaccine mandates and how it applies to them and it, it doesn't sound like there's a unified approach at this point it is definitely uh, it's a work in progress so we're sitting here it's 9 20 in the morning on friday the story could change by the time uh, you hit the airways friday night what we know at this point is that the universities are trying to figure out exactly how to implement and interpret this mandate that involves federal contractors. And we know the universities are federal contractors because they receive $89 million in federal contracts. What we know at this point is the University of Idaho is saying something that other universities around the country have said. We think this mandate applies to every employee on campus. Now, we're talking about almost 5,500 employees on the U of I campus would, would apply. I want to correct something I, I said last week when we talked about this. This doesn't extend to students unless they're employees of the university as well. But 5,500 employees at the U of I could be affected by this, uh, by this executive order. Well, I, I imagine that there are a lot of student employees as well. You know, I know mm -hmm. that when I worked there, or when I went to school there, I think I worked for the university all four years. I was a work-study student too. So we don't know how many students would fall under that category, but my guess is you're right. It's probably a pretty significant number. Now I have to ask you, you as an employee of Boise State University, what are you hearing? I mean, I think they're still trying to figure out exactly what this is going to look like and what it's going to apply. I think, I mean, we've been receiving information on, you know, we, there's a vaccine clinic on campus and encouraging people to, to utilize it. And so I, I think I'll be interested to see what sort of communication we do receive. And, but to be clear, you know, as we're having this conversation on Friday morning, that decision hasn't been made, it sounds like. I mean, not that, I mean, I'm, <laughs> perhaps I'm not in the know, but I, I'm, I, I've, I've heard discussions about, you know, they're trying to figure it out or see what this means um, and to be aware of this discussion. What's the State Board of Education saying about this, Kevin? They've kind of taken a two-pronged approach to it. On the one hand, they are telling the universities you need to plan to implement this. You need to go forward. But they're also a party to one of the several lawsuits challenging this executive order. So, you know, we'll see how this plays out in court, in you know, several federal courts probably, while we see how this is playing out on the campuses. Because the clock is ticking on the campuses. I mean, they've rolled back the deadline for vaccinations. I think it's now the first week of January. Mm -hmm. But that's still a, a fairly tight turnaround time.
You know, especially if they need people to be fully vaccinated by that point. Fully vaccinated, the two doses, exactly. You know, do you expect this to come up during the legislature's special, unspecial, coming back into session in mid-November? To the extent that anybody can predict what happens <laughs> during that special, unspecial, unexpected session, yeah, it's definitely going to come up. I think this definitely flavors the debate over vaccine mandates because so far it's been a debate over private businesses like hospitals. Uh, and, and let's talk a little bit. We have about a minute left. But as we are approaching this session, aside from how this affects state agencies like higher education, what are you going to be looking for? Well, you know, I'm going to look to see if there are any unexpected issues. I mean, legislative leaders are trying to you know, corral this session to focus on vaccine mandates, but the House is still also going to have to address the Priscilla Giddings ethics uh, investigation and the, and the recommendations from the committee. But you put 105 legislators together, and unlike a special session where the governor really does set the agenda, you know, this who knows what's going to happen? We, we are really going into a, um, a reconvened session unlike anything we've seen before. All right, Dr. Jacqueline Kettler, Boise State University, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News, thank you both so much for joining us. While most Idaho communities had city council and school board races to consider, a handful of resort towns across the state had another issue on the ballot, whether to raise local sales taxes for community improvements. Logan Finney traveled to North Idaho recently to explore this unique funding option available to a small number of Idaho cities. Whether you're buying groceries, clothing for your kids, or a new car, you probably know what the sales tax is in Idaho. 6% on almost every purchase. That is, unless you're in certain small resort towns that have the ability to implement a local option sales tax. Local option taxes, or LOTS, are a sales tax that's available to small resort cities in Idaho, meant to capture revenue from travelers and tourists to the region. Ponderay is a small city in northern Idaho of about 1,200 people that passed a 1% sales tax in 2019 to fund two local park projects. Most of the state is 6%. Ponderay, it is 7%. One penny of that stays home and goes directly to the city of Ponderay. The city is using those revenues to design a regional sports complex, as well as a railroad underpass to give residents and visitors safe access to the lake. What happens in Ponderay is we have two miles of lakeshore on Lake Ponderay and no public access. We've had years of people, you know, trespass across the railroad tracks. They find a way to get to the lake. We're trying to make that legitimate option for all of our residents and, and even the broader community. Local sales tax revenues have been a windfall for Ponderay, allowing the city to punch far above its weight and compete for outside funding sources it wouldn't otherwise have access to. Those include an $800,000 grant from the EPA to help clean up the former smelter site on the shore of the lake, and a $1.4 million grant from the U.S. Department of Transportation to design the railroad underpass. The sales tax provided Ponderay with match funding for both programs. We could not have a shovel-ready project for a city this size without the funding from the local option tax. Ponderay is small in population, but it's also home to a number of retail and big box stores. In its first year, the 1% sales tax generated about $2.5 million for the city. There's some other things in there, but you could basically say it doubled our budget. Next door in the city of Sandpoint, voters passed a 1% sales tax in 2015 to fund improvements to the town's football stadium at War Memorial Field. 
including new grandstands, artificial turf on the sports fields, and revamped access to Lake Ponderé. Whenever the city puts a local option tax on the ballot, there's concern that it's not going to pass because you need a supermajority. But with that particular project, um, it, it really resonated with a lot of the residents. After that measure sunset at the end of last year, city officials decided to run it again, this time for sidewalk improvements and to benefit other parks in the city. A majority of Sandpoint voters cast their ballots in favor of the measure this November election, but not enough for it to pass with the required 60% supermajority. These improvements to our parks are community visioned and, and they will happen regardless um, of this lot passing or not. It'll just take longer, but we'd, we'd rather not consider raising our residents' property taxes in order to accomplish these goals when there's other options. Because local option taxes are only available to resort cities with a population under 10,000 people, the door is closing on Sandpoint's ability to run them due to the city's growth. This is something we've talked to our local representatives about on many occasions over the last couple of years because we had that concern that the next census we were going to be over 10,000 and we lose our ability to ask our residents to support something like this. And we really felt that the, the 10,000 um, person cutoff was, was quite arbitrary. Officials in some larger cities like Twin Falls think that local sales taxes could be a way for them to rely less heavily on their property tax payers. Twin Falls has a census population of over 50,000 residents, so they are not able to put a local option tax on the ballot. Uh, the local option sales tax that is available up in Blaine County with many of the cities at Sun Valley and Ketchum, they have a public transportation system that is, that is not uh, completely funded through local option sales tax. Um, but it is, it helps offset that. Fights over whether to expand the local option tax go back decades at the State House, with bills rarely moving forward. There's been no indication from lawmakers that it will be on the agenda this upcoming session, and the cities and counties don't have a unified proposal to lobby behind. Until that we're able to move forward with having a good, clear understanding what one policy or one process would be for the entire state of Idaho, um, we're not able to put together a piece of legislation that would be widely supported. Instead, the legislature's focus has been on property taxes in recent years. Meanwhile, the state has a record-breaking budget surplus, but commerce hubs like the city of Twin Falls and Ponderay say that the revenue-sharing formula doesn't benefit them. The state has had a banner year in, in uh, revenue collections, the city of Twin Falls, where one can argue several millions of dollars were generated will not benefit uh, directly from that as a result of the, of the redistribution formula. Ponderé got about $126,000 based on that formula last year. So that's 15 million to Boise, 126,000 back. It's not someone trying to be mean to us as a small city, it's how a one size fits all formula operates, right? None of the officials we spoke to said they want to rely entirely on local sales taxes. Rather, they see them as another tool they could use to diversify how they fund local government. Property taxes are the bread and butter of cities. It will always be probably the best fit for taxing the operations of local government functions. And there's actually a danger in the sales tax it can be quite volatile. And if we lean on that too heavily, the city could certainly get in trouble. I also know that there are individuals in the legislature that really believe that um, property taxes are, are, are a terrible form of tax and, 
and that we got to find a way to reduce that. I think probably where we haven't done a great job as cities is, is really sharing that um, property taxes is the only vehicle that we have um, to be able to supply goods and services that are critical and demanded by our citizens. Property taxes are a perennial topic of discussion at the State House and were the subject of sweeping legislation last spring. Lawmakers haven't settled on proposals for the upcoming session, but in the meantime, local governments will keep leveraging their funding in creative ways. Look, we're sending all this money to Boise and we're getting very little back. If we kept a little bit at home, it's kind of a challenge. Can we do more with one penny? than they can do with six cents. Logan Finney joins me on set now to discuss local option sales tax. Logan, you focused on Sandpoint, but there were other local option ballot measures as well on Tuesday. That's right, there were a total of five ballot measures related to local sales taxes across Idaho. Uh, there were successfully passed in Crouch, Swan Valley, and Victor, and measures failed in Sandpoint, as well as two ballot questions in Lava Hot Springs. Across the state, how many cities currently have local option taxes and what do they use them for? Uh, based on information from the Associated Taxpayers of Idaho, plus these results from Tuesday, I count 17 cities in Idaho that currently have local option taxes in place. Uh, and they typically are on things that capture tourist dollars in these resort cities. So things like uh, short-term rentals being uh, hotels and motels or vacation homes, as well as liquor by the drinks and uh, restaurant foods, again, trying to capture those tourist dollars from, from recreation. Um, but they can also be on general sales, like the 6% sales tax and the, the things I talk about in the package. And there are some specific exemptions to that. Uh, the city of Sun Valley, for example, has a 1% sales tax on specifically ski lift tickets and season passes, whereas the city of Stanley uh, has a 2.5% general sales tax on everything except for guided recreation packages. And that 10% popul or sorry, the 10,000 population cap made sense when this law was first implemented in the late 70s, but cities like Sandpoint are going to start bumping up against that cap here pretty soon with the growth that the state has seen. That's right. Uh, the local option taxes were first uh, allowed by the legislature in the late 1970s after some lobbying from mayors of towns like Ketchum and Sun Valley. Um, and since then, larger cities have been asking to also have access to it. We talked to the city manager of Twin Falls in the package, but I've also read articles in the Spokesman Review from the 1990s where city officials in Coeur d'Alene uh, were lobbying at the time to be able to levy sales taxes on hotel stays, but those conversations haven't made it very far. Logan, you've also been covering redistricting, and the Redistricting Commission was scheduled to meet on Friday afternoon. You can find links to the map on the Idaho Reports blog. You'll find that link at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. These conversations, Logan, have been civil, but there are also disagreements about county splits. That's right. When it comes to the legislative map, there are only so many ways that you can split up the state of Idaho into 35 evenly populated districts uh, with all of the restrictions on the map. I, I like to say it's more of a math problem than a political problem when it comes to the legislative map. Um, however, with the congressional map, Idaho only has two seats in the House of Representatives, so there are many ways that you can split up the state of Idaho into two populations. Uh, the conversations among the commission earlier this week, it sounds like they are leaning toward continuing the 50-year history of dividing Ada County to get two equal, equal populous uh, districts. But there are a number of maps that um, 
do not split county lines and come within the permissible deviation. There is some precedent from the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in a case out of West Virginia a couple of years ago that says states, if they have a compelling interest like not splitting counties, there is a permissible population deviation that can be put in place. And we know that there are going to be some unhappy people once these maps are released. We'll be watching for potential litigation. Logan Finney, thanks so much for joining me and thank you for watching. We'll see you here next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.